This is Jake. And you're listening to Normandale Summit Podcast. So go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 4, starting in verse 26. So we're going to be looking at a parable of Jesus to continue in a series that we began uh, a couple weeks ago, really, about evangelism. And so if you recall, we were going through the book of Revelation. And uh, we were in chapter 12 for a couple weeks. And uh, if we remember, what that was all about was conquering the devil. And, uh, and so there was a verse in there, verse 4, that really stood out to me, the one that we didn't give enough justice to at the time. He was talking about how do we conquer the devil. And, and the two ways that we do it are by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And uh, so we've hit a lot on the blood of the lamb. We didn't hit as much on the word of the testimony. And so we've launched from that verse into a little mini-series inside of the series, which is all about evangelism. How do you and I live by the word of our testimony in the gospel of Jesus Christ? But what we want to do is we're trying to present it in a way to where everyone can hear the word evangelism and not feel incredibly tense about it. It's where you can feel as a normal person, as a normal Christian who feels introverted many of the time, you feel like this is something that you can actually live out in your own life. Now, uh, so we, that's what we're looking at. So last week, if you were not here, what we talked about was how do you identify who to share the gospel with? And so we looked at a passage in which Jesus sent out 72 disciples or people to go and, and go into villages ahead of him. And he said, if a person of peace is there... And let your peace remain on them. But if they're not, then it will return to you. And I was like, well, how do you find a person of peace? And so we identified, how do you find a person of peace in your own life? If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. You can do that on our podcast feed or on our website. Um, but what we t- you identified, essentially what we did is we identified three to six non-Christians in our own lives that we know, family members, friends, work buddies, uh, relate kid, people related to like our kids, sports things like parents of our kids, you know, friends. And we said, out of those people, which of those are moving towards you and which ones are moving away from you? And so I want you to circle the ones who are moving towards you in terms of trust, openness, communication, uh, willing to come sit next to you if you're sitting there, that kind of a thing. And if you circled any names, that was your person of peace. That's your one. That's someone who's moving towards you that you can share the gospel with. But the question is this. We left last week with, that's your one. That's who you should identify as a person you should go after to try to draw into a relationship with Jesus. And we left you with, now pray for them and lean into that relationship this week. But the question then is this. What's the next step? What do you do with them once you got them? Okay, I got this person. Now what do I do? And so we are trying to teach, what I want to teach you is how do you live with a life of ministry, a life of ministry mindset, or like an evangelistic heart, an evangelistic attitude to where you can walk away from these sermons from church and feel empowered and encouraged to live out what Jesus calls us to do and not really anxious and tense or filled with dread over it, right? Because if we're honest, if you hear the word evangelism, often we're filled with dread about it. And so what I want you to do is walk away from this feeling encouraged because I want to also do it in a way that acknowledges that there are some of us who are gifted with the gift of evangelism, 
over and above others. Like there are some of us in, the room, in this room who are not gifted with the gift of evangelism. And so how, you can, how can you evangelize by, by still acknowledging that some people have a gift of it when others don't, right? Some people are going to just have natural responses. Some people are naturally going to be able to weave every conversation to the gospel. Many of us can't do that. And so I want you, that person, the normal person, to be able to think, I can do this. That's what we're getting at here. Now, we're looking at this parable in Mark chapter 4, which is the parable of the growing seed. And when we preach through Mark, I don't actually think we hit this parable uh, probably three or four years ago, however long ago that was. And so we're looking at the text here today. It's Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. And it says this, The kingdom of God is like this. He said, A man scatters seed on the ground. And he sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, and although he doesn't know how. The soil produces crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. And as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle, because the harvest has come. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer before we dig into his word. And so, Father, come before you. We thank you for this parable from Jesus to teach us about what the kingdom of the growth in the kingdom of God is like. And so I pray that you would help us to be able to think clearly and to be able to understand your word, that we'd be open to receiving it. And that in all things, we would honor you with how we live in, according, in accordance with it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this process, or I mean, this parable is really helpful for normal people like us. Uh, because we begin to, to process, like, we, we begin the process of, of evangelism and the aim of, like, a, starting a conversation with your one, or as you begin that process of to kind of thinking through these things, what this parable does is it actually gives, I think, great relief to us who feel tense about this idea, but also great confidence in the pattern that it sets. So when you're thinking about growth in the kingdom of God, how does one person go from living a life who is apart from God, living a life who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and turning and live to like turning and turning a corner to live a life that is filled with love for Jesus. That, that story of conversion, as we're thinking about our one, like how do I lead this person from this point to this point? I think this parable really gives us two things that are going to be really beneficial for us. The first one is this, as I said, great relief in the mystery. Great relief in the mystery of how a person chooses to go from point A to point B with Jesus. The second thing I think it gives us, though, is great confidence in the pattern that it sets for how a person goes from point A to point B in a life filled with Jesus. So great relief in the mystery and great confidence in the pattern. So check this out. This parable is a story that Jesus told about the nature of growth and conversion from the perspective of the farmer. So look what happens in verse 28, I mean 26. The kingdom of God is like this. He's got a farmer in a field. And what this dude does, he goes out and he takes this seed and he scatters it on the ground. And after he works the soil and plants his seed, then what he does is he goes to sleep and he rests. And he rises night and day and works the ground, and the seed sprouts and grows. And although it, he doesn't know how, but it produces, it produces a fruit or produces grain by itself. Now, in this, Jesus is not necessarily wanting us to learn how to farm. 
in a, in a sense. What he's doing is he's telling a story to teach you and me about what growth in the kingdom of God is like, what spiritual growth for non-Christians leading to the point of relationship with Jesus, but also the growth for Christians who are deepening their relationship with Jesus. He's like, what does that actually look like? How does that actually play out in like the real world when we're wanting to see our friends come to know Jesus? What is that, what is that process really like? Like, how does, it, how does it actually work? Because if you and I set out to do this, it can bring a bunch of mixed emotions for us, right? Like, if you've got your one in mind, think of your one, the person that you want to come to know, you want them to come to know Jesus. In one hand, on one hand, like, you can have great joy, great excitement about identifying this is the one that I want to come to know who Jesus is. You can feel like great support, like that, but then also at certain points, after you try to engage with this person, you can get to a point where you feel real confused and really discouraged and really angry, maybe, at God that you're kind of trying to work this thing out. And, like, and, uh, and so Jesus is trying to give you an idea of how can you do this in a way that's relieving to you? How can you do this in a way that's relieving to you? It's look what this man does. He works, and he scatters the seed on the ground, and then what does he do? He goes to sleep. He's, he goes to sleep. You see, there's a process to the growth of this guy's land that occurs apart from his action, that occurs apart from his process, his presence, and his action. In fact, the text is explicit that this farmer puts things in place, he starts working, but then he even doesn't even know exactly how it all works. He's just doing what he knows to do. He just, he's, he's going he's gonna to do what he does, can. He's going to work the soil. He's going to plant the seeds. And then he's just going to trust the process that it's going to play out as he needs it to play out. Like, he does what he needs to do. But ultimately, what he's recognizing is that any growth that's happening in this seed coming into a plant occurs outside of him. He can set the stage. He can give water to it. He can put it in the right place. But whether this seed grows or not is not up to him. And so Jesus is getting at, ultimately, to this farmer, growth and what he's trying to produce is a mystery to him. It's a mystery to him. And what Jesus is getting at is this. Growth in the kingdom of God is the same. Growth in the kingdom of God runs the same way. See, as Christians, we seek to make disciples. And so we preach the word. We teach the word in our life groups and to our kids to our neighbors as we get a chance. We disciple people. We share the gospel as we can. We encourage faith in Jesus among our kids, among our grandkids, among our parents, among our coworkers. We encourage faith in Jesus. Like we seek to be an example to the outside world through how we love one another, through how many meal trains we set up for one another, through how many like friends, like, hey, we're going to keep your kids so you can go on a date. Like, that kind of love for one another. Like, we're, we're an example to an outside, unbelieving world of how we love one another, right? So, we seek, to, we seek to make disciples. We encourage spiritual growth among one another through meeting together all the time in our groups, different groups, and, and through our different events. We try to do these things. But who and how and when and why and if growth, spiritual growth, actually occurs in any person is still a mystery to us. You see, why does one person respond by faith and another person rejects? It's a mystery. 
why do some people respond to sermons with passion? And they're like, that spoke to me. It's like God was speaking to me because of that sermon. And then other people fall asleep and don't care. Or why, when you do a Bible reading plan in the morning, on one day, do you read it? And you're like, this was amazing. I feel like God was speaking to me. And other days you read it, and then you get to Chick-fil-A, and you move on with your life, and you don't think about it ever again. Why does that occur? Or why can one person read a psalm and feel the comfort, the presence of God in their situation in their life, and another person can read that exact same psalm and never think another word about it? Why does that happen? How does that happen? And what Jesus is getting at here is growth. The movement of the Spirit of God is a mystery. It's a mystery. We don't know why these things occur, why it reaches some people at certain times and not others at the same time. It's a mystery, and it's beyond us. Look at the farmer. Look at the farmer. What happens? He does what he can. He plants the seed, but he doesn't know how it grows. He puts things in place to see it happen, and he trusts the process. And so what are we getting at here? In this way, you and I cannot manufacture, and this is important for us as we've identified our one, and you know this, but we cannot manufacture heart change in anyone. It's a mystery. It's a mystery when it occurs. It's a mystery how it occurs. It's a mystery if it will occur at all. Our job, just as the farmer, is simply to be one who is diligent to doing things we can do. See, Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he says this. He's like, who, who's Apollos? There's another, another guy who was preaching at the time. Who's Apollos? Who's Paul? Like, like, we're, like we're servants through whom you believed, and each, each one has a role that God gave. Like, I planted, Apollos came after me and watered, but then who gave the growth? God. God gave the growth. So then neither one of us, the one who plants or the one who waters, is anything but only God who gives the growth. That's what he's talking about. There's a mystery behind how and when and who and if anyone's going to receive the word. Our job is simply to be faithful to give it. That's the, that's the role. And so here, here's the great relief of this truth for you and me. Results with your one are not on you. That's the point. The results, like seeing results with your one are not on you. Your job is to plant the seed, to work the ground, to create good soil, to create a good environment for them to encourage, like for you to encourage faith. But ultimately, whether they cross the threshold over to giving their life to follow Jesus is not on you. It's a mystery. It's the work of the Spirit of God. And this is a, a, particularly, uh, this is a particular area of, uh, of a pitfall for, for leaders, for many leaders in, in this room. Like, if you're active in preaching or in teaching, or in discipling, um, or in leading any group, like kids or students or adults in any area, to where you, like, we can get into a pitfall to where we think, if I just prepare enough, or if I were just a little bit better of a speaker, or if I just asked better, if I just asked better questions, or if I was slightly more prepared, or if we just had better fellowship things, then this class would grow. 
Or then this, people, this person would take their next step into faith. Or then this person would finally give their life to follow Jesus. Or then this person would step up and finally take on this leadership role. Ultimately, what you can do is prepare the soil, but it's not on you. Results aren't on you. It's God's responsibility. And with that, what Jesus is trying to say is, I want you to feel relief from that. Because you don't have to produce. You just have to prepare. That's what he's getting at here. And so look at the farmer. Look what he does in verse, verse 27. He scatters, and then he goes to bed. He takes a nap because he understands this thing is going to grow outside of me. There are processes that take place that don't require me, but require someone above me. And so I want you to feel the great relief of the mystery of spiritual growth. Feel the relief of that. Do the work and then rest and trust God. But the second thing I want you to see is this. And so look at verse 28. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade and then the head and then the full grain on the head. And as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. See, even in the mystery of growth, like the unknowns of when and why and how God guides people to spiritual growth and to conversion. And I'm thinking specifically here this morning of conversion, the, the point at which a person gives their life to follow Jesus, like where they're ultimately they're apart from him. And they say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm going to repent of that. Now I'm giving my life to follow him in obedience now forever. That's conversion. And that's what I'm thinking about this morning. And there, there may be, even within the mystery of how and when and why someone might give their life to follow Jesus, there may be a discernible pattern in the path that people commonly take to faith. And I'm not saying it's 100% of the time, but I'm saying there might be a common discernible path that people generally take toward faith. See, if you, and like, it's seeing this pattern, I, what I want you to see in just a second is a, is a discernible pattern to where you can be filled with confidence as you set out to engage your one, right? I want you to feel first relief that old oh, results aren't on you, but I want you to feel confidence that you can know at least a pathway for how to engage a person in, in gospel conversations, right? And so even in the mystery, look at this. What happens? He sleeps and he rises. He doesn't know how this thing works, but ultimately it does outside of him. But yet, even with him not knowing exactly how all the processes work of the growth of the plant, what does he know? There are observable processes that do take place, and he knows what comes next. Look, first the blade, then the head pops up, and then a full grain comes up on that head. And at a certain point, he knows when harvest time is ready, and he goes out to cut that grain. And so there are, even in the mystery, discernible patterns for how people might come to know Jesus. Now, this might ring true for your own life. Consider your own conversion, like your own story of coming to know Jesus. Most likely, if you really, like if you think back of when you were eight or when you were 16 or 25 or however old you were, most likely it was not an instantaneous event to where you are living a life apart from Christ with no concern for God. Someone hands you a Bible tract or tells you the gospel, and instantly you're like, you know what, I'm a sinner, I need grace. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness, I'm going to follow you with my life. Most likely it was not that simple of an event. Rather, for most of us, it was probably a process 
that someone who loved you walked you through to where at first you just knew, I trust this person. Maybe it was your parents. And over time, what do they do? They teach you about who Jesus is, that you become curious about their faith. And at a certain point, after a while of walking through a process with this other person who loved you, then you take the step to follow Jesus, right? There was probably a process that in which you were led to faith in Jesus by someone who loved you, right? Now, several years ago, uh, I don't know how many years ago, four, three, four, five years ago, uh, I went on a mission trip to Serbia with a group from, from here. And uh, we, were, we were sent there to aid or help a, an IMB missionary uh, who was serving in Belgrade at the time. He's not there anymore. And, uh, but while we were there, he, he had a really heavy emphasis on evangelism. And, and so he was telling us about a book. It was actually this book right here called I Once Was Lost. He, was, he introduced me to it. And, and so I finally picked it up. And this thing is incredible. Because in this book, what, what, what the two guys who wrote it are interested in is how did thousands of, like, what's the, what's the process by which all of these college students came to know Jesus? And so they were interested in this because they worked for a college evangelism ministry called InterVarsity. And uh, they had a season of growth in which they saw thousands of students come to know Christ. And they went back and they wanted to interview them to do research behind how did they get there? Like, is there a discernible pathway or pattern that these people took toward getting to know Jesus? And they, at first, when they, when they set out to do these interviews, to hear their testimonies, they didn't really expect to see any patterns. They just thought they'd hear different, different like, okay, this person, this was interesting, or this person, this was important, or for this person, this was important. But what they found arising as a, like a very common thread among all of these testimonies was a discernible kind of five-point pattern. I'm sure they actually termed the five thresholds among these different students. And they were shocked by seeing the similarities of their stories. And, and so in the same way that Jesus says, what this farmer sees is the blade and then the head and then the grain, and then he goes to harvest. What they saw in the testimonies of these college students was a similar story. And so in, this, in these five thresholds, here's what they saw. They observed first that people needed to learn to trust a Christian. And I said these a couple weeks ago, but we're going to dig a little bit more into it. The first thing that, that these college students need to do was learn to trust a Christian. That was the first threshold they needed to get over. The second one, after they learned to trust a Christian, was getting to the point of becoming curious about their faith. And once they became curious about their faith, the next threshold they had to get over was becoming open to the need for change in their life. So you can be curious about faith, but have no interest in changing your life, right? And so the third one was becoming open to change. The fourth threshold is once they became open to change, then there was a process of getting over the threshold of needing to seek truth trying to find truth in the right places. And then after they began really seeking, the last threshold, and probably the hardest one, is choosing to become a follower of Jesus. And so those are the five thresholds. It was learning to trust a Christian, 
becoming curious about faith, becoming open to change, starting to seek truth, and then choosing to follow, choosing to follow Jesus. Now, the mystery, as we talked about at the beginning, still remains. Arriving at any of these thresholds is no guarantee of stepping over it to the next one. Like, it still remains there. Like, when and how and if someone is going to take that step of faith is still a mystery. It's still a work of God. We can't guarantee or make any of this happen. It's, so what this is, is really just an opportunity for you and me to work smartly in, in setting the right soil pattern, right? Just as this farmer knew, I've got to work the soil and I've got to plant the seeds, you and I can work smartly alongside God in like setting a good stage for him to be able to work, right? And so, and so there's still a mystery there, but there's also observable patterns that can really benefit us as we seek to engage our one. And this is called contextualization. Now, this is a common thing in, in, in missionary environments or settings. So contextualization means... You adapt, you don't change, but you adapt the message of the gospel to meet where your people group are at, but also changing your methods of evangelism or methods of reaching out to change the needs of where you're at. So, for example, here's, a, here's an example of contextualization. What did Chris just say up here? We had a life group built around motorcycle riding. That is a method of reaching people. That's not going to reach everyone. It's going to reach a specific group of people. I don't know. If, my bike, would that fit? I don't know. But, but certain groups of people are going to fit into this. And so Chris Minch was someone that saw they are reaching out to me. That's contextualization. That's changing your method to reach a specific group of people, to meet them where they're at, right? Another example of this is like, say you work among, uh, you're trying to reach a group of immigrants, and so what's a model to reach out to pull these people in? Start an ESL program. You pull an ESL program, start this up. Well, guess what? You're going to pull in a bunch of people who need to learn English because they just were brought to the United States. Boom. You've got a group of people that you can reach into, right? So that's called, that's called changing your method to, to meet the needs of the people, right? Another uh, one is changing your story, changing the message, adapting the message to meet where the people are at. So, for example, in the sharing the gospel, you and I here in the U.S., we exist with a guilt-innocence mindset. So, you and I think primarily in terms of guilt and innocence. So, when we share the gospel, that's why you're so into true crime, true crime podcasts and all that kind of stuff. So, when we share the gospel, we share it in this way. You're guilty before God. As such, you deserve death, the punishment for your sin. But Jesus came and took your punishment for you, took your sin, and in place, what does he do? He grants you innocence. And so, therefore, you can be reconciled with God because there's no more guilt on you. That's, the, that's how we share the gospel because that's the way that we think. But if you go to a different culture, say you go to the Far East, they don't think in terms of guilt innocence. They don't really care that much about that. But they care way more about honor and shame. Honor and shame. And so instead of sharing the gospel, so if you go there and you try to share the gospel, like you're guilty before God, but Jesus guarantees you innocence, like they were like, that's great. I don't really care that much. And so if you're in that context, what do you do? You emphasize the honor and the shame of the gospel. You dishonored God by how you 
rebelled against him. And as such, you brought shame upon yourself and upon your family, and therefore God has disowned you. But Jesus took your disownment and he took your shame upon himself. What does Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 say? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. What is he for the joy laid before him? What happened? He endured the cross and despised the shame of it. And what happened? Then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He took your shame. So therefore, you can be restored back to your Father in heaven and be bestowed with the honor that was reserved for Jesus, right? Now, think about that. Why does Jesus say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking your disownment, and instead, he's granting you the adoption, right? And so if you're in that context of a different context, you change or adapt the message to meet where the people are at, their culture, their mindset. Now, why do I tell you this? Because just as you would do that in a missionary setting, let's like, and I'm thinking that strict, like kind of in a strict sense, in the same way, you do that for your one. You do that for your one. That's what I'm saying. See, not every person that exists outside of Jesus is at the same place on the plot line. Not every person has the same background or the same history, or the same ethnicity, or the same cultural background, or is that the same place in, in their spiritual walk with God? Some people are at a negative one. Some people are at a negative hundred. And you have an opportunity to recognize where they're at. See, the point is, not everyone just needs you to walk up and say, God is holy. That means he's perfect. In fact, he's so perfect that no, like, like yes, that's good. But sometimes, if that person doesn't trust you, the message will fall flat uh, every time. And so what I want to look at just really briefly is I want to look at just the first one. I just want to look very briefly at the first one of these, which is trust. Trust. Because this is the beginning point for how do you begin to share the gospel with your one the very first thing that needs to happen is they need to trust you. Because think about it. How many of you have no soliciting signs on your door at home? I don't, but I really need one. We have paper ones we tape to it all the time, right? Why is that? Because you have people who knock on your doors trying to sell you solar panels. Got tons of roofers right now trying to come sell you a roof. Got, I had one time someone trying to sell me a vacuum. <laughs> Are you there wanting to come test your water? Right? You have these no soliciting signs. Why? Because you instantly know someone comes knock at my door, I don't trust them and I don't trust their message. They're just trying to get something out of me. And so if you don't engage in trying to garner trust in your friend, then what is going to happen is you're just another salesman. You're not a friend. You're a salesman. And so the first step is just to grow trust. And I'm starting here because this is where Jesus started. It's where Jesus started, right? See, Jesus didn't just kind of like send a trumpet from heaven and like give a message and say, you need, to, you need to repent and turn to God. What happens? He became incarnate. He came to live here, to become like us, as Philippians said, to take the form of a servant, to come and walk among us, to come and attend weddings, to come and attend parties, to come and invite people to, into his life, say, come and see. Come and see what I'm doing. So he said to his disciples, right? See, what does he do? He begins at a place of building trust among 
people. He's going to move in, and he's going to say, I'm here. Come join me, right? He starts by building trust. That's what he does. He leans into people. He was incarnate. He began the process of building trust to then be able to share his message with us. And the same thing is true for us. See, the process of building trust with our friend is the pathway of love. It's the path of Jesus. That's what he does. And so here, very briefly, I'm out of time now. We'll talk more about this. Uh, We're going to have an evangelism training. We may do it next week too. I don't know. But we're going to have an evangelism training. You see on the white piece of paper uh, in two weeks. But how can you do this very simply? Begin to build trust. And really what I'm talking about is how do you make a friend? That's what I'm talking about. The first thing is pray. Pray for them. And pray for your relationship. That you wouldn't get defensive. Second thing is this. Learn about them. Be interested in them, their story, their hobbies. What makes them tick? How's family life going? Third one is bond. Everyone needs a friend to help them bleed brakes sometimes in their garage. I had June do it with me uh, yesterday, and uh, I was under the hood. I mean, I was under the under the bumper, and June was pumping the brakes, and then she just felt like honking the horn. <laughs> And I was like, hey, just push, keep pushing the brake. And I'm like under it. And like, I'm literally underneath the horn. If, you're, if you've never been under a car when a, when a horn honks, it is very loud. It scared me like crazy. And uh, sometimes you just need your friend to come help you, right? You don't need your six-year-old to do it. Bond. You bond with them. And the fourth one is affirm. You see, everyone has things worth affirming in them. Even like, I mean, think about it, and you, we don't give credit to this, but even people of different religions have things very worth affirming. You Buddhist friend, their search for spiritual, the spiritual life, that is worth affirming. That is a good thing. Their search for just to be mindful about their life, about what's going on, that is a good thing to be observant about that. That's worth affirming, Right? whether they care for their kids, it's worth affirming. And then the last thing is welcome them. Welcome them. Are you inviting? Now, there are so many things to say about this. I've got five seconds left, so I can't say it. We're going to dig into it more in the future, but if you want to learn more about this, that's just simply the first step, and I just gave you the highlights of it. But this book is called I Once Was Lost. Very, very, very helpful. Uh, and I've got it right here. If you want to come check it out after the sermon uh, or service this morning. Um, we'll dig in more into this uh, as a church in the coming weeks as well. But this is just the high-level ideas, simply how to make a friend. How do you earn trust with someone for the sake of the gospel? And again, it's not manipulative. It's being a good friend. That's what it is. And in this, it's really a call to love people like Jesus did, right? And so in this parable, here's what I hope you found. I hope you find great relief in the mystery of growth and that it's not on you to produce results, it's on God. But the second thing I hope you got is great confidence that there is a pattern for where your friend might be to give you a context or a framework for how to begin to engage them. To be able to understand that maybe what they don't need right now is a tract. Maybe what they need right now is someone to come help them 
put nails in a fence to put it back up, right? And so, together, let's pray. And so, Father, we come before you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the discernible patterns and encouragement that you give us through your parable. And so I pray that we would be people who would be ready and willing to engage, to just be good friends to our neighbors, to earn trust, just as Jesus did. And so help us to live by faith and to live with boldness in that. And I pray that you would fill us with encouragement for this so we can see that the pathway towards leading other people to Jesus is not one that's built for only specific super Christians, but you also give pathways for normal people like us to begin to engage our community. And so we thank you for the great privilege that we have to be a part of your plan for Fort Worth, for Alito, for Lakeside and for White Settlement. And so I pray that we would be a light here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, it would be a shame to, to end the thing about evangelism and not share the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can. Let's go with the shame, message, the shame one. Here's the reality is that you have sinned before God, all people sin before a holy God and as such we brought shame upon ourselves and as a result of that God has disowned us we're removed from him but Jesus came and lived the perfect life as the perfect son and then he went to a cross and bore the shame that you deserved and he took your disownment to where he cried out on the cross and said my God my God why have you forsaken me so that through his sacrifice on the cross, you might receive honor from God, restoration to your Father in heaven, and honor. And here's how you receive it. You turn to him by faith, to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner, and that I have removed myself from God, and I believe that you are God's Son who came to live the perfect life, and you died for me, and through that I receive forgiveness and restoration back to God. And now I want to follow you with my life. That's how you become a Christian. And so if you want to pray with someone either about that or about your one, I'm going to be standing in the back corner by the doors. And so while the band plays, you respond.